0: Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. This recording and the festival itself take place on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to ancestors and elders, past and present. We hope you enjoy this conversation from our 2021 podcast series.
1: Good evening. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, Before I get started... I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, uh, the traditional owners of the land here um, where we are gathering today. Um, And I wanna pay my respects to elders past and present. Some of you may have noticed that I don't have much of a voice, um, which means that unfortunately, I don't get to be your charming and uh, delightful host for the evening. (laughs) I don't think I'd make it through. And I have four more days of festival. Thank you for being here. And if any of you want to leave after I give you the news that Will is hosting, um, (laughs) that would be okay. Uh, We can refund your tickets at the box office. Uh, (laughs) um, I just, before I do hand over to Will, who is wonderful and is doing me a wonderful favour and look at how handsome he is. I just want to just have a little moment to say that there was a point last year where I'm not sure if we would ever get to be here again in this way. And it is incredibly special and To see so many of you turning out for this event tonight has, you know, warmed my very, well. sorry, pretty warm heart, but it's, yeah, it's actually really touching and um, I think we're going to have a really special event tonight. Something that always interests me is who the writers that we love are as readers and who they were as readers when they were young and I hope tonight we might understand that a little bit more. So thank you all for being here. Please welcome Will, as warmly as you can manage, and enjoy the night.
2: Thank you. Amelia, I didn't know this was a roast, but okay, the tone has been set. Uh, My name is Will Kostakis. I am a young adult author, and I'm also that guy who at some point this evening will sit down too heavily and fall off the stage. Pause before laughing in case there's blood. If there's no blood, then laugh as hard as you like. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight. It's very rare that writers get to talk about our habits as readers and the characters who have left their marks on us. The characters we're going to be talking about tonight, we might want to protect them for a host of reasons. It could be because we see ourselves in them, or because they taught us something we needed to learn at exactly the moment that we needed to learn it, or because we're furious at an author who keeps doing them wrong. And I won't name names because defamation. (laughs) What unites these characters is the fact that they have lingered in our minds long after we have read them. To begin, I would like to introduce Gary Lonesborough. He is a UN man from Bega. His debut novel, The Boy from the Mish, has enraptured readers across the country and soon across the world. I had the pleasure of reading the novel before release and Jackson is going to be one of those characters I carry with me for a long time. He loves intensely. We see that in his strong bonds to his family and his community and the way he practices his culture. But he's human, he annoys easily and he's not afraid to fight when he needs to. It's my pleasure to introduce his author to kick things off. Please welcome
0: Gary Lonesborough. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's very great to be here with such an amazing panel. I'm still mind-blown that I'm in this situation. All right, so, uh, you know, getting the, the brief of a character that we wanted to protect at all costs. First one that came to my head was Holden Caulfield from The Catcher in the Rye. Uh, this is probably going to sound weird, but I really wanted to read The Catcher in the Rye when I heard that that was uh, John Lennon's Assassin's favourite book. Uh, <laughs> So I thought that was really mysterious and scary, so uh, just, I just wanted to read it. Uh, but as a reader, I think when I read a book, when I read a character's story, I'm kind of subconsciously enforcing my own life and my own experiences on them. You know, much like making friends, I'm trying to find things that we have in common, uh, things I can relate to them with, and uh, moments in their story where I can really understand how a character is feeling in that situation because I've felt something like it myself. And so I read The Catcher in the Rye uh, shortly after landing my book deal for the boyfriend Mish. Uh, At the time, I was working for an Aboriginal organisation, helping Aboriginal people with disabilities and working with Aboriginal kids in the juvenile justice centres. When you begin to read The Catcher in the Rye, you're pulled straight into the head of Holden Caulfield. Through the opening sentence, which I'd like to read to you because I love it. Uh, If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap, but I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. Two things about reading The Catcher in the Rye in 2019. Uh, There's a real language barrier over the, you know, the colloquialisms and the sayings that Uh, was said like in the 50s in America that don't exist in modern-day Australia. And another thing was Holden Caulfield is a really frustrating character. I absolutely hated him at the start. He's very angry at the world. He's very short-tempered. He's not nice to the people around him. Uh, He's a kid who's been expelled from three different schools. So uh, when we meet him at the start of the book, he's just been expelled from his third. Uh, And he's a kid who doesn't have a positive connection with his parents or his older brother. He's a kid who doesn't have any role models in his life who are actively trying to be there for him. And he's also a kid who loves his little sister. And he's a kid who is still grieving the death of his little brother many years earlier. And when I read The Catcher in the Rye, when I was reading Holden's story, I was connecting to him in ways I found surprising. I've been very cynical at different points in my life, especially as a teen. I hated authority I hated, you know, playing by the rules. And I've suffered loss, and I've been angry at the universe for a long time. And there was something about Holden that I could recognise from those Aboriginal kids that I worked with in the juvenile justice centres. You know, I've had lunch with 10-year-old Aboriginal boys who've been locked up, and, and I've seen how, how their past has affected them in the present day. Uh, I played touch footy with them, I cooked damper with them, and I painted with them. And a lot of those kids, like Holden Caulfield, are quick to anger. A lot of them are short-tempered. A lot of them are disconnected from their families and culture. A lot of them don't do well in school, sometimes because of behavioural issues, sometimes because school's just not for them. And a lot of them didn't trust adults like me, who had come in under this banner that we were there to help them, because they'd been let down by adults before. I connected with Holden because I could see so much of these real kids I was trying to help in him who, like him, are frustrating to deal with at times, who you can grow to hate from the first meeting, and who can be hard to understand, hard to connect with, because of all these walls they've put up to protect themselves. I could see these kids who just needed an adult or someone who was willing to support them, someone who could be patient with them, who could relate to them and connect with them, and mostly just someone who could understand how they feel. When I was reading Holden Caulfield's story, I was there still with those kids in the centres. I recognised those kids I tried to help in Holden, who, while he can be frustrating at times, just needs someone to be patient, to connect with him and be there to support him when he needs. And I don't know if that's 10 minutes, probably not, but that's all I've written, so uh, yeah, thanks.
2: Thank you, Gary. Now, you will likely recognise our next speaker, Zana Freylon, as the author of the industry taking 2016 novel, The Bone Sparrow. It was recognised the world over, and she's back with her third novel for young adults, The Lost Soul Atlas. Reading it, I was drawn to flee, resilient and strong. They have a clear sense of who they are and a belief in themselves that, frankly, makes me a little jealous. They see the best in any situation and always manage to think their way out of trouble. Please welcome Flea's author, Zana Frelon.
3: Hi, everyone. So, when we were given the brief, we were told we could uh, interpret it loosely, which <laughs> um, is probably a silly thing to do with a, with a bunch of authors. But I, I you know, I, I took those words and um, I've done a more creative response. So, sorry. There is an ancient forest, a forest, the storytellers say, that grows inside me, inside you, inside all of us, and deep, deep inside this forest lives a boned old hag. Her nose is long and bulbous, her hair matted and nested with birds, her nails are claws, her teeth are made of iron, and when she chews, bones crumble. This hag is known by many names in many languages, but you know her as Old Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga flies in a boat-sized mortar and pestle, rowing across the currents of the night. She lives in a hut that stands on chicken legs, a hut that shuffles around the dirt in the constantly confused spin of a small wooden house that used to be a chicken. She keeps animals, or the animals keep her. The animals change from story to story, but there is a dog and a cat and a raven. This we know. And the fence that surrounds Baba Yaga's hut has been lovingly crafted piece by piece from the bones of children. Their femurs, tibulas, radius, spine. Their skulls sit proudly atop the spires. And in this hut, deep in the forest, Baba Yaga waits because children always come to Baba Yaga's hut, always. You are three when you first meet Baba Yaga The book, Bony Legs, is put into your hands and you devour it, reading it over and over and over again. The little girl in the story, Sophia, is supposed to be the hero, but you aren't interested in little Sophia, needing a needle and thread for her mending. Little Sophia, who ignores all the warning signs and barely makes it home alive. It is Baba Yaga that keeps you coming back to that hut on chicken legs. If she really wanted to, you think, Baba Yaga could have caught that Sophia. Baba Yaga, you think, was just messing with little Sophia like your cat that keeps catching the white rat that lives under the house. Every week, the cat catches the rat, brings it inside, then lets it go, her tail twitching, her purring growing louder as the rat scuttles away. You call the rat Sophia, and when your parents ask why, you shrug. People always underestimate the three-year-old mind. You are three and six-eighths, and your eyes are screwed. They don't work the way eyes are supposed to work. They are the wrong shape, the wrong size, the wrong lens, just wrong. They have always been wrong, but no one knows. Not yet. It will be years and years before anyone will realise you can't focus on anything further than a hand span away. It is no surprise that you are always reading. Books you can see, but the rest of the world smudges into a blurred fog, a mess of muted colours, could-bes and possibles. Shapes are constantly twisting from one form to another. Baba Yaga hunched in her black cloak, is everywhere. You are two, three, four, five, six, seven. Every morning at breakfast, there is another face of a missing child printed on the milk carton. It is a national campaign to make people aware, to make people alert and alarmed, a campaign to make invisible children somehow noticed, somehow seen. Have you seen this child? You read, you absorb their faces, their names, their dates of birth, They gather around you at the table, absorbing each other. Went missing while walking to school. Went missing on his way to catch the bus. Went missing on her way home from a piano lesson. Went missing from her front garden. Went missing from the park, from the shops, from the playground. It's true, they agree. We did. Every morning, more and more children arrive with the milk. Your kitchen isn't big enough to hold them all. Listen, listen, they whisper, and push and shove to be heard. Your mother turns the cupboards inside out, searching for her mortar and pestle. She never finds it. You are four. The white rat is dead. Its head is missing. You look for the missing head atop the spires of your garden fence, but it isn't there. The cat stops purring. You are five and starting school, the milk carton children follow you along the sidewalk. They huddle at your back and slow you down. It is only a few blocks walk, but a few blocks is all it ever takes. Your older brother is riding to school with his best friend. Your legs can't keep up. You can't catch your breath. He says you'll be fine. It's only a few blocks. The milk carton children tug at your jacket and pull at your backpack and murmur in your ears. When you get to the school crossing, the lollipop lady smiles at you. Her teeth are silver. Iron, you think. Iron, the milk carton children whisper. You are six. Almost, and there is an earthquake. Secretly, you are delighted. All those drills at school are finally paying off. You shelter under the kitchen table before remembering that doorways are the safest. The babysitter is useless. She can't find her dog and has become hysterical. When the world stops shaking, you look out the window, but it was only a small quake and nothing looks any different. Car alarms are going off all up and down your street, but no-one is coming to turn them off. An old woman is shuffling slowly among the fallen branches, putting things carefully into her sack. Bone collecting, the milk carton children whisper. They had remembered to stand in the doorways at least. You wave, but the old woman doesn't wave back. You are seven, you are four, you are ten, you are fourteen, you are thirty-three, you are twenty-two, you are six. You wake from a dream, the dream, covered in sweat, your legs thrashing. In the dream, you are lying on the street while all around you lie bodies of kids you know. Their faces are all covered in blood. Play dead, the milk carton children whisper. You play dead and the gunman pokes and prods you with his gun. Play dead. You do and he walks away. In the dream, you are an excellent actor. You are six. A boy, also six, goes missing from your local supermarket. He went to the bathroom. You know which one? The brick one built like a little house in the supermarket car park, right next to the trolleys. You've used that bathroom before. The boy's mother left her shopping inside to take him to the toilet. She waited outside the bathroom door. She waited and waited and waited and waited. She knocked on the door. She banged on the door. She called his name. The bathroom was empty. Her boy was gone. You wait for his face to appear on the milk carton. You wait and wait and wait and wait. You see, the milk carton children whisper, there are more of us, so many more, Don't you know anything? Aren't you listening? Listen, they tell you. Listen. You are eight and living back in Australia now. Here, the milk cartons tell you just about the cows and percentages of fat. Someone, a teacher, notices that you can't see. The optometrist gives you glasses and tells you to enjoy using them while you can. Your mother won't want me to tell you this, he says, crouching down to you and adjusting his bow tie. But by the time you are 18, you'll be legally blind. His breath smells like cigarettes. On a car trip home, you can see the leaves on the trees as you drive past each actual leaf. Your mind is blown. Bushes are now just bushes. How did they ever look like anything else? Trees are no longer the legs of towering beasts, but simply trees. Nothing shifts shape or twists into being as you near it. You miss Baba Yaga. You are 19 and walking through an art gallery in Venice. The walls bloom with imagination. The ground beneath your feet is uneven, and when your foot catches, you notice that the ground isn't just ground. It is made up of thousands and thousands of tiny little people. Their hands are all raised, holding you up, the weight of your being almost crushing. Their mouths are all open. They are screaming, talking, crying out, whispering. But no one hears them. No one hears them at all. Don't you know anything? They whisper. You are 39, and while researching a book, you stumble on a story about Laloba, the bone collector, an old hag with a long bulbous nose and claws for nails and bird nests in her hair. She collects the bones of those that are at risk of being forgotten. She takes the bones and she sings over them, singing them back into being. The story doesn't say she travels in a mortar and pestle. But what do stories know? You are still 39, although closer now to 40, and one of your closest friends sends you a poem by Gabriella Mistral. It's what closest friends do. When I'm walking, everything on earth gets up and stops me and whispers to me. And what they tell me is their story, reads the poem. And the people walking on the road leave me their stories. I pick them up where they fell in cocoons of silken thread. Stories run through my body or sit purring in my lap. So many they take my breath away, buzzing, boiling, humming, Uncalled, they come to me, and told, they still won't leave me. Like the story of Bony Legs, you devour the poem, over and over again. Women looking for children who got lost and don't come home. Women who think they're alive and don't know they're dead. Every night they ask for stories, and I return, tale for tale. In the middle of the road, I stand between rivers that won't let me go, and the circle keeps closing, and I'm caught in the wheel." The riverside people tell me of the drowned woman sunk in grasses, and her gaze tells her story, and I graft the tales onto my open hands. To the thumb come stories of animals, to the index finger, stories of my dead. There are so many tales of children, they swarm on my palm like ants. You are 40. You are chasing footprints through time, back and forth and back and forth, a horde of the politically unimportant trampling the dirt, their voices long silenced, their lives forgotten, subsumed, consumed. It's true, they agree, we were. But their voices are so quiet now, you wonder if you ever really heard them at all. Sometimes you think you get just a glimpse of them, just a moment of their being. Sometimes you take your glasses off and walk the streets half blind, where the shadows can twist and shift. You are old, older, oldest. Outside your house, there are claw prints in the clayed soil, as though your house has been spinning in slow, confused circles. Your teeth ache, your nails grow and twist. There are sticks in your hair. At night, the children whisper, listen, listen.
2: Thank you very much, Zana. Now the most groanworthy thing an MC can do is say that an author needs no introduction and then proceed to introduce them. But for Garth Nix, it's kind of true, and I'm contractually obligated to introduce him, so Whether you were introduced to him through the Old Kingdom fantasy series or the Keys to the Kingdom series or his latest novel, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London, you know that he's written dozens of cherished characters and that narrowing it down to one is a difficult task. But what can I say? I have a soft spot for characters who can sometimes be bribed with fish. Moggett is based on every cat Garth has ever known and reminds me of every cat I've ever known. But he's not actually a cat. And he's definitely amoral, though. Give
4: it up for Garth Nix.
5: Thank you.
4: Well, I'm sticking with the subject of magical talking cats because I think they are always a good thing in a story. Now, I'm quite often asked if my characters are based on real people. In fact, I was asked yesterday at a school session if any of my characters are based on on any real person. And my answer is no. I tend to take bits and pieces of people I know and have observed and I put them together, which sounds very unappealing, rather like a Frankenstein's monster. But, you know, I hope you can't see the joins when they're actually in, in my stories. But there is an exception which is the disreputable dog, whose dog-like characteristics, because she's not actually a dog either, were based on my family dog, Bitniks, And in fact, my book, Lyriel where the disreputable dog first appears, um, is dedicated to Bitniks. But predating the disreputable dog is, of course, Mogget, the ancient and powerful entity who likes to take an animal form, usually as a cat, but not always. He has other forms and other names. And when asked about who or what inspired Moggart? my my usual answer, as Will said, is that Moggett is based on all the cats I've ever known. And in thinking about this, it occurred to me that this includes all the the cats that I've read about, and particularly the magical talking cats. So the cats of Nicholas Stuart Gray's The Stone Cage, Tomalin, which is the story of Rapunzel, but the toll from the point of view of The Witch's Cat, it's a wonderful book. Also Nicholas Stuart Gray's Grimbold's Other World, with the mysterious Grimbold who, who leads people into a whole other, a whole other world. Um, also Cat, K-H-A-T from Randolph Stowe's Midnight, uh, an Australian classic. Um, Rosemary Harris's um, Egyptian talking cats from The Moon and the Cloud and other books but it also occurred to me that as well as these very influential magical cats in books, there are also real cats. There were three significant real cats. So Mogget is based on all the cats I've ever known, but three cats in my life in particular deserve special mention. And the first of these cats was Jimmy. Now, Jimmy was the cat of my early childhood, and Jimmy was a tortoiseshell cat who either did not know he was a cat or he had chosen to be something else. And he didn't respond to other cats positively or negatively. If one approached, he would look the other way in the manner of a Duke surprised by a servant who should have remained invisible. He just didn't care. And if a dog came up to him and barked at him and was aggressive to him, he would just lick his paws and look at them and wouldn't move. And they would they would become disturbed and eventually back off and run away though one bit me on the bottom instead because I guess that was a more familiar target than whatever the hell Jimmy was, which that dog could not understand. Jimmy also liked to hang half off windowsills and verandas like some sort of drunken bat. I mean, he 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 looked like he was more than two thirds over the edge, but he never fell off. He never fell. He also used to like to sit in the middle of the road and we'd go and get him, but then he'd go back and sit in the middle of the road again. And he was never run over. Cars would appear and drive around him. I mean, admittedly, this was early 1970s Canberra, so there weren't a lot of cars. But even so, Jimmy appeared to have some special power. And apart from his prompt arrival at meals, Jimmy's only interaction with humans and his family was that every now and again, he would just come over and lick us. And his tongue was like sandpaper and it wasn't wet. It was dry. It was like being rasped by a demented carpenter. And it was really horrible and we all hated it, which is, of course, why he did it. And I gave that characteristic to Mogget. Now, the second cat I knew more briefly in my 20s, and a cat, he, it was a cat so black he could have just been cut out of the midnight sky. And he arrived one summer night at my elbow inside my house, just there at my side, I don't know how he got there, where he came from. He just sat there and after a while, I gave him something to eat, which he deigned to eat. And then he left again. And I presumed he belonged to one of my neighbors, but none of them would claim him. No one knew anything about an intensely black cat who moved in mysterious ways. And he went away and I didn't see him for a few weeks. Then he came back again and he he manifested in the same way. I didn't hear him, he was just there. He had dinner, he lay around for a while. And then he exited through a gap under a window I would have sworn was not open enough for him to pass. And I watched him go into the night and after he'd gone three or four feet, I couldn't see him at all. He was such a dark cat. And this went on for a few months and very originally I called him Shadow. And he seemed healthy and looked after, but I never saw him around the neighbourhood by day or night. He would simply appear, have something to eat, go again. And the last time I saw him, He paused by the window and he looked back at me and his eyes caught the light. And for the first time I saw them properly and he had incredibly deep green knowing eyes. I never saw shadow again, but I gave his eyes to Mogget. And the third cat was a chancer called Little Puss. She looked like a kitten, but she was actually a fully grown cat. And she notionally belonged to a neighbor two terrace houses down the street but in fact had achieved total domination over at least five households that I knew of, maybe more, including my own, of course. I had a discussion once with her owner and she was complaining to me she couldn't understand why little puss smelt of wood smoke all the time. And I had to explain this was because the cat spent several hours a day lying in front of my fireplace. I also suggested that perhaps little puss should be checked for worms since I knew she ate in so many places and still stayed tiny. And her owner took offence at this and said little puss was a fussy eater and didn't eat much. That was why she was small and she couldn't possibly be getting meals in all the neighbours' houses. But she was. And as we discussed this, little puss twined around her owner's legs and purred. The picture of innocence, definitely not someone who had already eaten four breakfasts that day. This too, I gave to Mogget. Thank you.
2: Leanne Hall is a bookseller and an award-winning young adult and children's author. The buzz around her latest novel, The Gaps, is out of control. A moving examination of vulnerability and strength, safety and danger, and what it means to be a young woman in this world, The Gaps is poised to be a book we'll still be talking about in years to come. It will remain front of mind for me in large part because of Natalia. Annoying and charming, fiercely loyal and just plain fierce. I will protect her at all costs. Introducing her author, Leanne Hall. Hi. Um, I thought about my
6: choice for tonight carefully. I really did. First of all, I thought about characters that had been killed off by authors that I would like to bring back to life. Manchi from Patrick Ness is the knife of never letting go. Manchi. In my mind Manchi is still floating down a river somewhere on another planet, I'm sure, looking at squirrels and aliens as he sails past. After that, I thought of who I would literally take a bullet for. I considered my first true love, Anne Shirley, and it was hard not to go past her, but then I thought, you know, Gilbert and Diana have got her back. She really doesn't need me at all. But when it came down to it, there was really no dilemma the only character I would truly, truly die for is Claudia Kishi. Yes! (laughs) Supporters in the house! (laughs) Claudia was the only Asian character from my youth that rose to true prominence. I can't really emphasise enough the sheer desperate thirst I felt as a child of wanting to see myself and my family in books, TVs and movies and finding myself with almost nothing to hold on to. I tried to claim Winnie Cooper from The Wonder Years as Asian-ish for a little while, but it was no good. I checked her Wikipedia entry and she's just a confusing mix of Portuguese and random European. (laughs) There was only ever Claudia, vice president of the Babysitter's Club. Claudia is a second generation Japanese-American and I'm a third generation Chinese-Australian, but no matter, close enough. The general attitude in my childhood years was, you all look the same anyway, so I absolutely get to claim Claudia as a literary sister. (laughs) Thankfully, Claudia wasn't just a token Asian. She was no Nellie Yuki or Katie Farkas. Sorry, that's a Gossip Girl reference that (laughs) no one really got. Claudia was on an equal footing with the three other core members of the Babysitter's Club, She narrated her fair share of the 200 odd Babysitters Club titles, which were first solely penned by Anne M. Martin and then written by a large committee of ghostwriters. Aside from a brief and unpleasant episode in Babysitters Club number 56, Keep Out Claudia, tagline Who wouldn't want Claudia for a babysitter? Answer Three Aryan demon children. (laughs) That's who. Claudia's life in Stony Brook, Connecticut, is remarkably free from overt racism or daily microaggressions. Even more importantly, though, Claudia wasn't a stereotypical Asian. You know the sort, wears glasses, good at maths, conservatively dressed, behaves in accordance with model minority rules at all times. Let's be clear, there's nothing wrong with being any of those things. I was hopelessly short-sighted as a child, unfortunately excellent at maths, and even worse, a real teacher's pet. I felt the weight of those stereotypes heavily though, but I tried to make up for it by being a fast runner and good at sports. Even then, I understood that to be seen as truly Australian required being good at sports. But too often people would just see what they thought they should be seeing and not the full complexity of what was really there. Trying to figure out my true self has always been fraught as I've bumped up against internalised racism and found myself acting only in reaction to those stereotypes. Claudia Kishi at least let me know that there wasn't one way to be Asian. In Claudia's own words from Babysitter's Club, number seven, Claudia and Mean Janine, "'I'm smart, but I don't like school or homework. "'My family is conservative, but I'm wild. (laughs) "'I like loud clothes. "'I like to dance. "'I can be a real pain sometimes.'" Claudia can't spell, never does her homework, gets bad grades, and is even kept down a year level at one point. But she knows who she is, and that's an artist. Instead of focusing on school, she focuses on extracurricular art classes and ambitious new creative projects. Despite being an intensely creative and imaginative child and teenager, I didn't recognise the artist and storyteller in me until much later than Claudia did, let alone allow myself to give it priority. If you have a spare 20 minutes and a Netflix subscription, I'd encourage you to watch the excellent documentary, The Claudia Kishi Club, where it becomes clear that a whole generation of Asian American novelists, visual artists, illustrators and graphic novel creators can trace their adult careers all the way back to seeing Claudia and knowing it was possible to be Asian and an artist. And now to be perfectly superficial, the other impressive thing about Claudia is that she's fashionable and she's pretty. As we're reminded at the beginning of most Babysitter's Club books, Claudia has silky jet black hair, dark almond-shaped eyes, and creamy skin without so much as a trace of a pimple. Of course she has. We're going to let that bit slide, and Martin did her best. Claudia also has three ear piercings, wears her hair differently every day, and is extremely fashion-forward. One of the overwhelming joys of the Babysitter's Club series are Claudia's outfits. She describes it best herself. I like bright colours and big patterns and funny touches such as earrings made from feathers. Maybe this is because I'm an artist, I don't know. Today, for instance, I'm wearing purple pants that stop just below my knees and are held up with suspenders, white tights with clocks on them, a purple plaid shirt with a matching hat, my high top sneakers and lobster earrings. (laughs) Clothes like these are my trademark. (laughs) I was the youngest of three daughters and money was always tight, so I had to be happy with wearing hand-me-downs that had already been handed down once before. But I was lucky to have a mum who could sew, so I gave her very precise instructions for outfits inspired by Claudia Kishi that in hindsight probably made me look like I'd been rummaging about in op shop bins after hours. Claudia also gets quite a lot of boy action. There's a love triangle with a 7th grader called Mark and an 8th grader called Josh. Jeremy and Alan fight over her and let's not forget Trevor Sanborn, Claudia's ex-boyfriend who is the most beautiful boy in her grade but unfortunately is now dating his own poetry. (laughs) Without any hint of slut-shaming, I would also like to say that Claudia had an impressive amount of holiday romances. Every summer, I daydreamed and planned for the teen holiday romances I was destined to have. And I'm still waiting. <laughs> Quite frankly, my teen years were a dry, romanceless wasteland, but at least I had aspirations. In a world where all the models, actresses, and general sex pots were white, I took great comfort in Claudia's rich preteen suburban love life. I don't only want to save Claudia Keachy from all harm, sometimes I like to imagine her utopian adult life in a fair amount of detail. (laughs) I imagine that she's now in her early 40s like me. She lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where there's a thriving artistic community and where the sunshine has turned her creamy skin a lovely deep tan, even though she definitely uses Biore UV Aqua Rich Watery Essence SPF and an excellent vitamin C serum. Claudia lives in a happy throuple with African-American Jake and Korean-American Simon. <laughs> After a lifetime of dating white guys, Claudia realised that she had internalised the messed up standards of beauty and desire handed to her by white supremacy, and she chooses to share her life with two men of colour, even though Asian men in no way have an entitlement to her uterus by virtue of some weird patriarchal Our Women bloodline bullshit. Claudia is child free and totally focused on her large scale sculptural pieces celebrating popular junk food and nollies. Her notion of which have expanded to include Pocky and white rabbit creamy candy. She doesn't know it yet, but one day Uniqlo is gonna tap her to make a capsule collection from her illustrations. And should Claudia ever need it, as she may well in a nation with poor gun control, I am perfectly willing to leap slow motion in front of her, Kevin Costner in the bodyguard style, to take a bullet.
2: Thank you, Leanne. Michael Pryor is the author of more than 35 books, Librarians in schools across the country cannot keep his latest two, The Gap Year in Ghost Town and Graveyard Shift in Ghost Town, on the shelves they are so popular. In large part because of Anton Marin, the quick-witted protagonist. He's not afraid to say sorry or pick up a jacket or seven at an op shop. But it's how he dreadfully misses his little brother that endears us to him most. Please welcome
5: Michael Pryor. Uh, thanks, Well, Thanks, everybody. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping before I start. Apparently, the next 10 minutes or so has an official hashtag for you who are live tweeting, and that is awesome, apparently. Or sensational will do. It, it's an official thing. Just had to get that out of the way. Uh, so, characters I'd die for. Uh, yes, I too have interpreted the brief loosely, going off at a tangent. <laughs> Authors, huh? who would have <laughs> predicted that? And uh, I was thinking about the whole business of why, why I'd die for some characters, and also the craft behind uh, making that happen. And it came to me when I was considering this, that the business comes down to some of those crucial moments in every story, in every narrative, where I find these characters who I'd be prepared to die for. Uh, they are those moments when the chips are down, when the characters' backs are against the wall, where their odds are against them, where they have to stand up and be counted, where they say, this far and no more. Those character defining moments are what endear these characters to me and make them uh, the people I'd want to die for. Uh, in my books, it's, uh, it is people like Aubrey Fitzwilliam from the Laws of Magic series uh, who when he finally faces his nemesis, Doctor Tremaine, he is facing—it's a confrontation where it's not only questioning everything he'd ever believed, but it's putting his very soul in peril. Or it might be Anton Marin and Ronnie Cross from the uh, Ghost Town series, where they finally track down the serial killer who is supernaturally charged, but who is also broken by tragedy and grief in her recent past. And they then have to grapple with their own experience of loss while being assailed by very, very nasty ghosts. So these people who are put in this situation, uh, where do writers, where, where do I find the wherewithal to create these character defining moments? And I am just going to pause my talk there for a moment and consider that word, wherewithal, wherewithal, what a wonder, I love those compound words, wherewithal, notwithstanding, hitherto, nonetheless, they're so juicy, so so magnificent in the mouth, I really do enjoy those compound words. Okay, got that out of the way, back to the talk. <clears throat> so, these character-defining moments, where do we find the wherewithal to, uh, to write these intensely emotional, character-defining moments? Well, I know how I do it. I turn to the infinite resource that is me. I look inside myself. I look for those moments in my past that have been character-defining moments for me. And with your indulgence, I'll share one with you right now. I I live near a park, which is a wonderful thing for a writer. It's a little bit of urban wilderness with uh, lots of trees. There's a creek and a bike path. And for those moments where I need a little bit of solitude and walking around while I'm considering the ins and outs of the latest work in progress, it's a haven. And I do recall one day, some time ago, I was following the bike path. I'm not really noticing the surroundings as I was going, only to notice that uh, there were no people. It was one of those midweek days, mid-morning, midweek, that was a little deserted. And as I was walking, I had a feeling that I was being watched. I was, that that, that awful prickling feeling on the back of your neck. And I looked, I couldn't see anyone. I scanned the surroundings, couldn't see anyone. But it was so, it was so fierce, I had to stop and I stopped and I turned 360 degrees, no one. But then out of the corner of my eye, I saw movement and I tracked around and there in a tree at the side of the bike path, about four or five meters up in the tree was a ninja there was a ninja up in the tree of my local park, which is astounding in itself, but that, that's, that's this, this isn't the character defining moment, that that comes later, uh, I saw the ninja up in the tree. It, it was a moment of some tension because I do understand the age old equation. Nobody sees a ninja and lives. Therefore, I was about to die, which you would expect would be a character defining moment, but no, 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 you, you're gonna have to wait for that. That comes later. So. I saw the ninja up in the tree, was quite prepared, uh, quite prepared for death going over my will. Yeah, it was, it was in reasonable shape. And then the ninja did a ninja move. The ninja looked at me and shot out a hand, like so, and then went, shh. Now, I don't know about you, but if I ever see a ninja telling me to shh, I shushed. I didn't say a thing. I was just quite, I put the hand over the mouth and then the ninja just had enough of me and went, and I went on my way. Uh, congratulating myself at having survived an encounter with a ninja, I was pretty cool at that. And I was, uh, walked on, walked around the corner and while I was walking, I was thinking of how I'd write that to make me appear far more courageous than I had been. And when I looked up, As I went round the corner, two ninjas were running towards me. And I thought, well, Michael has survived one ninja. Can he survive two? Unlikely, but they kept going. They went straight past me. But then I had that moment where I couldn't hear them going anymore. And I realised they'd stopped right behind me. So summoning all my courage, this could be a character-defining moment. No, 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 it's coming, it's coming. Uh, I turned around and they'd stopped. They'd stopped right behind me. And one of them pointed at me and said, have you seen him? Have you seen him? This is the character-defining moment. Because I know what I should have said. I know what I should have said. This is one of those moments, you know the moments where there's something happens, the argument, you walk away half an hour later, you go, ah, what I should have said. This is my, what I should have said, character defining moment. Because the ninja said to me, have you seen him? This is what I should have said. Have I seen him? Have I seen the moon before it rises? Have I seen the wind as it whispers over the grass? Have I seen the love in the heart of a baby child? Yeah, but I didn't. I said, yeah, he's in a tree around the corner. (laughs) I, I just gave him up and surrendered and caved in utterly in my character defining moment. And I like to remember these uh, things, these moments of crisis, where everything comes to a head, where you can stand up and be counted, or you can crumble into a heap. Characters I'd die for, the ones I write, I would die for all my characters, because as you see, there's a little bit of me in all of them, and I'm nothing if not self-protective. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Michael. Previously the editor-at-large at at Buzzfeed, Jenna Guillaume is rapidly becoming one of the go-to authors of Australian YA rom-coms. You Were Made For Me and What I Like About Me are celebrated by readers both here and abroad. One of my favorite reading memories of the past few years was spending a Christmas holiday with Maisie and Beamer in What I Like About Me. Beamer hides his pain with humor, cries watching sad movies, is a good grandson, and we can't help the urge to protect him at all costs. His author is Jenna Guillaume.
7: Thank you. Um, I want to know if I say the name Artax, if anyone knows what I'm talking about or Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. I figure I would get one of two reactions, which is probably either blank looks of confusion or um, having people reliving childhood trauma. So (laughs) I'm sorry if you're in the latter category and I'm about to take you on a whole journey through that. So... Because <laughs> um, I think there's a moment in every child's life when you just have an absolutely heart shattering, completely traumatising moment in fiction. Um, whether that's what you're reading or um, a movie you're watching, there's a character that you love so much and something terrible happens to them, and it just like it's perhaps your first encounter with grief and um, it leaves you never the same again. Um, the first time this happened for me was Artax in The Never Ending Story. Um, I don't know about any of you, but I think there's something uniquely devastating when something terrible happens to an animal in a story. I think um, I can read about hundreds of people being blown up or, you know, a main character dying or, um, you know, my emotions might range from a, a light sadness to, oh, like, oh, that's that's sad. Oh, um <laughs> Maybe I'm like, oh, I don't really care or I might, be quite, I might be quite happy depending on who the character is, uh, Joffrey Baratheon maybe. Um, uh, the, occasionally I will ugly cry very badly over a character, say so I, I cannot talk about Beth March at all, for instance. Um, but if an animal dies, like that's me done for the day. <laughs> like I will not recover. Um, in fact, it's been decades and I still have not recovered from Artax's death. For those who don't know, The NeverEnding Story is a book by Michael End that was adapted into a really popular movie trilogy in the 80s. You might actually know the theme song from Stranger Things last season. They sang The NeverEnding Story theme song, um, which was a great moment. Um, But basically, The NeverEnding Story is about a bullied boy named Bastion Balthasar Bucks, love those bees, Um, who one day trying to escape his tormentors comes across this book, this really thick book, um, which is The NeverEnding Story. And then as a reader or a viewer, if you're watching the movie, you get taken into that book with him and it becomes a story within the story. We're reading about Bastion, reading about this story. The story within the story is about a young boy named Atreyu who is sent on a quest on his trusty horse, Artax, who is his best friend. Um, And they have to figure out a way to save the land from the nothing, which is a void. It's literally nothing that is consuming the land. Everything is disappearing in the land. And it's quite terrifying. It's a wonderful adventure, but it's also pretty dark. Um, It gets even darker (laughs) when Artax and Atreyu reach the swamps of sadness. Uh, which the name kind of says it all. <laughs> um, in the movie, and if you've seen it, I'm sure it's seared into your eyeballs. Um, the movie basically they enter the Swamps of Sadness and it's this black swamp, and Artax, the horse, just starts sinking slowly, getting lower and lower, and then he just stops. And Atreus, like pulling on his bridle, he's saying, Artax, come on, why are you stopping? Don't stop. Um, and the horse is just standing there and he's just like I mean it's a pretty good acting from the horse like he looks very sad and um, he's just sinking lower and lower and is getting more and more distressed and he says don't give in to the sadness Artax you can do it come like I need you and like he's like screaming Artax oh, and it's just like that's just like you probably can hear that if you've seen the movie it's so distressing and um, he tries to pull him one way, he tries to pull him another, and he just won't, the, the horse won't budge, he just keeps on sinking lower and lower. And Atreyu pleads with him, he says, you're my best friend, I need you, please. Um, and uh, unfortunately, um, we don't, it kind of cuts away and then we see Artax is gone. <laughs> and it's just devastating. I'm probably going to start crying. Um, <laughs> in the book, it's even worse because Artax can talk in the book. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I'm taking you guys on a real sad journey. I'm really sorry. Um, but I'm going to read his death passage. I'm, really <laughs> I'm kind of regretting this. What am I doing? I'm just going to make you all suffer. I just want you all to know I write rom-coms. That like <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, so they've reached the swamp of sadness, okay? <laughs> so our text, we need with horror. Are we going in there, master? Yes, said Otreyu. we must find tortoiseshell mountain. It's at the centre of those swamps. He urged Artax on and Artax obeyed. Step by step, he tested the firmness of the ground, but they made, that made progress very slow. At length, Atreyu dismounted and led Artax by the bridle. Several times, the horse sank in, but managed to pull himself loose. But the further they went into the swamps of sadness, the more sluggish became his movements. He let his head droop and barely dragged himself forward. Artax said to what's the matter? I don't know, Master. I think we should turn back. There's no sense in all this. We're chasing after something you only dreamed about. We won't find anything. Maybe it's too late even now. Maybe the childlike empress is already dead and everything we're doing is useless. Let us turn back, Master. Atreyu was astonished. Artax, he said, You've never spoken like this. What's the matter? Are you sick? Maybe I am, said Artax. With every step we take, the sadness grows in my heart. I've lost hope, Master, and I feel so heavy, so heavy. I can't go on. But we must go on, cried Atreyu. Come along, Artax. He tugged at the bridle, but Artax stood still. He had sunken up to his belly and he had made no further effort to extricate himself. Artax, cried Atreyu, you mustn't let yourself go. Come, pull yourself out or you'll sink. Leave me, master, said the little horse. I can't make it. Go on alone. Don't bother about me. I can't stand the sadness anymore. I want to die. Desperately, Atreyu pulled at the bridle, but the horse sank deeper and deeper. When only his head emerged from the black water, Atreyu took it in his arms. "'I'll hold you, Artax,' he whispered. "'I won't let you go under.' The little horse uttered one last soft neigh. "'You can't help me, Master. It's all over for me.' Neither of us knew what we were getting into. Now we know why they called the swamps of sadness. It's the sadness that has made me so heavy. That's why I'm sinking. There's no help. "'But I'm here too,' said Atreyu, "'and I don't feel anything.' You're wearing the gem, master. And Artax said, Artax, it protects you. Then I'll hang it around your neck, Atreyu cried. Maybe it will protect you too. He started taking the chain off his neck. No, the little horse need. You mustn't do that, master. The glory was entrusted to you. You won't give him permission to pass it on as you see fit. You must carry on the quest without me. Atreyu pressed his face into the horse's cheek. Artax, he whispered, oh, my Artax. Will you grant me my last wish? The, the little horse asked. Atreyu nodded in silence. Then I beg you to go away. I don't want you to see my end. Will you do me that favour? Slowly, Atreyu rose. Half the horse's head was already in the black water. Farewell, Atreyu, my master, he said, and thank you. Atreyu pressed his lips together. He couldn't speak. Once again, he nodded to Artax, and then he turned away. Bastion was sobbing. He, he couldn't help it. His eyes filled with tears and he couldn't go on reading. He had to take out his handkerchief and blow his nose before he could go on. Um, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Um, But I I just think it's just a really wonderful passage for several reasons. I I love the framing device of the never ending story. We have Bastion reading it. And I just feel like that moment at the end is like, I just felt very seen as a reader because I'm like, yes, that's me. I'm like, I didn't need, I needed more than a moment to recover from from that scene. And it's a brutal scene. And I think it's a pretty potent allegory for depression, um, which I think I appreciate even more as an adult than I ever did as a kid. What also strikes me about this scene is Artax's self-sacrifice. He prioritises his master over his own life. I think this is what really gets me about animal characters. Uh, they're so innocent and pure, so loving and good. All they ever want is to help and support their human. It feels that much more gutting when they're they're hurt or killed, especially when that is because of their love for their human. I think that's the case for Artax. He goes into the swamps of sadness despite his own misgivings, because Atreyu urges him on, because Atreyu needs him to, And he dies alone to protect Atreyu from the last final horrific image. Even amidst his own despair, his love and care for his best friend is there. It reminds me of another talking animal, which Leanne mentioned earlier which is Manchi and the Knife of Never Letting Go from Patrick Ness's Chaos Walking series. So if you've never read that or seen the recent movie, he's the main character, Todd Hewitt's dog. Um, And the story takes place on a distant planet where every male creature's thoughts can be heard by everyone else. So Todd can hear and understand Manchi's thoughts effectively making him a talking dog. And Manchie's thoughts are exactly what you'd expect from a dog. Um, the first time we meet him, he's telling Todd that he needs to poo. Um, <laughs> he thinks about food a lot. He thinks about how much he loves Todd a lot as well. And Todd finds him annoying at times. He kind of is like, oh, you useless dog. Um, and it, which makes it all the more heartbreaking when Manchi just c- continues to follow Todd wherever he goes. Even when he goes on the run with Viola, who is a character in danger for plot reasons I won't get into. Manchi is by Todd's side as he faces danger after danger. Finally, there comes a moment when Todd and Manchi are trying to rescue Viola and Manchi gets caught in the villain's clutches and Todd must leave him behind in order to save himself and Viola. It's this really crushing moment because you're just like, no, you want him to go back and save him, but you know that that's certain death for um, himself and Viola if he does. Manchi dies protecting his humans. Um, The thing is, it's not just... Talking animal deaths that get get to me. It's it's any really. Um, I would say one that another one that really stands out is Lady Senses, die wolf in Game of Thrones. A lot of people die in that series. <laughs> A lot, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's not many who don't die. But I don't know that there's any death, even Ned Starks, that had quite the same impact on me as ladies, except maybe the other die wolves and the dragons. Um, <laughs> I just, like, I'm like, why do authors so willingly murder these beautiful, helpless animals? Patrick Ness, the author of The Knife of Never Letting Go, The Killer of Manchi, uh, <laughs> when questioned about his writing process, he said something along the lines of, just kill the damn dog. Um, when it's necessary for the plot, when the emotional impact is needed, the animal has to die. I'm sometimes envious of writers who can do that. I think who can write angst and devastating plot points and kill off their characters, especially their animals, while I imagine sitting at their desk, twirling their moustaches and cackling. Um, I, I mean, you know, if you can make a reader cry, I feel like that stays with them for a long, long time. If you can make someone cry on TikTok, you're guaranteed a bestseller. Um, LAUGHTER But I have a dog in my second book, You Were Made For Me. His name is Max and he likes cuddles and cookies and long walks on the beach. Uh, When I was drafting the book, I actually considered a plot point where Max went missing and he would be totally okay. He'd be found safe and sound after a couple of hours of panic. Um, You know, it's a romance. I was like, oh, this would be be interesting to like, give them something challenging to do. And they're worrying about this dog that's gone missing. But you know, I could not even bring myself to do that. I know sad stories leave an impact. There's a reason these animal deaths have stayed with me. I carry them in my heart. There's a real grief there for these characters that I love. And there's power in that as a storyteller and being able to have that kind of impact on someone's soul. Um, I think these are very important stories to tell. But for my own part, in my own writing, I gravitate towards hope, towards comfort, and towards a safe place where the animals never get hurt or die. In my own writing, at least, I can protect them all. Thank you. I'm sorry.
2: Now, as someone who had to watch entire rows cry, I promise there will be no more tears. Uh, The final speaker is me, and I was going to be really self-deprecating, but then Amelia did that, so I'm just going to be like, hi, I'm Will. I write books. Some of them are better than others. Um, And tonight... I would like to talk to you about Karma Harrison. Now, you haven't heard of Karma Harrison. If I'm wrong and she's a mutual friend, then you and I are now friends too. I came across Karma, spelt C-A-L-M-A, but as she will always tell you, pronounced karma as in good or bad karma because Natalie Portman shaved her head to star in V for Vendetta and at a premiere soon after, posed in front of a sea of paparazzi cameras. The year was 2005. I was sitting in my school library during a free period, but I wasn't there to read. I wasn't a reader. I was in year 11. I was quote-unquote too busy to be a reader But I was killing time sneaking glances at my brick of a mobile phone when the back of Natalie Portman's shaved head on a book cover across the room caught my attention. You're probably thinking, that's weird. Like, how could Will tell the back of Natalie Portman's head apart from the backs of all other shaved heads that have ever been photographed? Well, that is to say... It is the mid-2000s, and I am tragically obsessed with the Star Wars prequels. How tragically? A few months earlier, Natalie's line reading of, Anakin, you're breaking my heart, you're going down a path I can't follow, caused me to burst into loud tears in the movie theatre. <laughs> something my friends still taunt me about to this day, and it was really bad. Like, I don't know, people joke about triggering, but like... My friend would, in the middle, there would be a silent English class and my friend would just go, Annie, you're breaking my heart. And I would start crying and it was just bad and I had lots of friends, I swear. Um, Anyway... I cleared the distance between me and this book and plucked it off the shelves. Not too eagerly, obviously I was quote-unquote too busy to be a reader. It was bright yellow titled It's Not All About You Karma, written by Barry Johnsberg and like all the best books, it had an exclamation mark in the title. Despite the cover, it had absolutely nothing to do with Natalie Portman. Back in the day, publishers would slap any random image they could get the rights to on YA covers and hope nobody noticed. In this instance, a designer probably logged into Getty Images, searched woman shaved head and clicked their favourite or the cheapest. I returned to my seat and cracked the book open without a passing glance at the blurb. If it was good enough for Natalie Portman's likeness, it was good enough for me. (laughs) Nothing could have prepared me for Karma Harrison, though. From the first sentence, I could hear her in my head. As somebody who consumed a grand total of zero Australian stories, it was a shock to encounter a narrator who sounded like me, who abbreviated words like me, and who balanced casual snark with overpowering sarcasm like me. I was reading an Australian teenager who kept mentioning Australian stuff. I immediately took a liking to her. And then I got to know her. She had a complicated relationship with her father, who up and left years before. I had a complicated relationship with my father, who up and left years before. A teacher took an interest in her writing and pushed her to express herself creatively. A teacher took an interest in my writing and pushed me to express myself creatively she was reeling from the sudden death of a very very close friend i was well you get where i'm going with this karma wasn't just somebody i recognized she was thinly veiled Wilka Starkis fan fiction <laughs> i'd never experienced anything like that and it i was mesmerized so much so that halfway through the book i realized i was actually reading a sequel without having read the first one. <laughs> and I pushed on regardless, something that would make my skin crawl as an author who has recently written a sequel. The moment I was finished, I hunted that first book down, The Whole Business with Kifo and the Pitbull. Terrible title, amazing book. And I met Karma before the dad stuff, before exploring herself through poetry, before the grief, all the experiences that united us. She and a friend suspected that their English teacher was a drug dealer and they were trying to frame her for a murder. (laughs) I mean, Karma's life couldn't have been further from mine in that first book, but I was in awe of her. The way she spoke, the way she joked, she was willing to do absolutely anything for her friend and I was willing to do the same for her. Across two books... I think what endeared me most to her is the way she threw herself into every situation, usually emotions first and with catastrophic results. I mean, she might be a two time narrator, but often what she saw and what she told me wasn't actually what happened. She was entertaining but unreliable, flawed. She taught me that it was okay to make mistakes, and I mean, really, really, really big mistakes, like crack the case of your drug-dealing English teacher and you're bound to confidently make some pretty serious allegations about other people that turn out to be wildly wrong and cause a world of hurt. But she also taught me that no matter how big my stuff ups, I had the power to make them right. Here I am telling you how much I like her when she is perfectly capable of speaking for herself, via Barry Johnsburg, of course. Just listen to her describe meeting the love of her life, or the love of her life so far, at, of all places, a supermarket checkout. In Sicily, they call it the Thunderbolt, I read about it somewhere. It's when you see someone and all these hormonal reactions kick in. Your heart thumps, you sweat profusely, your stomach dips to your shoelaces, and bits and pieces you didn't know you possessed start tingling, like you've been plugged into the mains electricity. Well, that's what happened to me when I saw him. (laughs) I don't want you to think I am shallow, but... I won't start with his physical appearance. I'll stuff it, of course I will. He was tall and rangy as I watched him scan a tin of tuna and he did it so effortlessly with such grace and ease of movement like a balletic sequence. I caught the hint of lean muscles flexing beneath the uniform and then the horse died, no. Um, (laughs) I could picture him on a beach the sun reflecting off defined biceps and pectorals. You could graze your knuckles on. (laughs) His face was classically sculpted, high cheekbones framing a pert and flawless nose. His eyes were deep brown, liquid with sensitivity and hidden passion. His skin olive and gleaming beneath the overhead fluorescent lights During a particularly tricky scanning manoeuvre involving shrink-wrapped bok choy, he parted his full lips to reveal faultless, even teeth that flashed one brilliant shimmering star. Glossy black hair fell in a perfect curtain over his left eye. Basically, he was all right, if you like that kind of thing. So, obviously, Will doesn't know he's gay at this point, but all right. I wish I could tell you, though that in the 15 years after first meeting her, I've caught up with karma regularly. I mean, I pop open her books occasionally to read a passage or two to reluctant readers or aspiring writers, hoping that her voice inspires them as much as it inspired me. But I'm scared. It always happens with favourites, the hesitation to revisit them in case more mature eyes are more unkind and they spoil how I think of her. That isn't fair. I've grown, as has the world, and she stayed still. But even if I do revisit the whole business with Kiffo and the Pitbull, or it's not all about you, Karma! And it's not the same, and Karma and I don't click like we used to, I will always be thankful for her. It's because of her I went on to meet Melina Marchetta's Francesca, Marcus Zusak's Ed, Jacqueline Moriarty's Bindi, Siobhan Plaza's Frankie, Claire Zorn's Lucy, Lily Wilkinson's Prue, characters who haven't reflected my experience quite like karma, but who have certainly made my life richer for sharing it. It breaks my heart a little that karma is trapped in the before times, The odds are this is the first time you've heard somebody talking about her and you'll likely have difficulty finding the book she's in. But if you do snag a copy and read her... There'll be distance between you because her life is similar to yours yet different in marked ways because she exists in the analog era of payphones just before smartphones were invented the era of waiting in line at the supermarket instead of scurrying towards the self-checkout to avoid the human interaction my heart breaks a little more when i realize how close i came to missing out on meeting karma entirely when her experiences reflected mine almost one-to-one, had a designer not chosen a photo of Natalie Portman and failed to disguise the fact that it was Natalie Portman, had I not been obsessed with Natalie Portman, I would not have met karma, would not have fallen back in love with reading, would not have discovered Australian young adult literature in that moment and seen a pathway towards being the author I am tonight. And I wonder how many karmas I'm missing right now. How many karmas were all missing? Because a book is older, because it's fallen out of print, or because Senator Amidala isn't on the cover. (laughs) And if nobody reads them, the odds of them falling in front of the teen who needs them most begin to shrink. And there isn't somebody who'll talk about them at Sydney Writers Festival 16 years later. Life so completely shaped by them. So if you've caught yourself falling out of love with reading or talking less about the stories you used to love, make an effort to change that. Because these characters we love, these stories we love, this local industry we love, they need our protection or they vanish. And it's our job to keep them alive, not just for what they give to us, but what they give to the next generation and the next And so this is the part where I'd sit down and then an MC would stand up. But hey, it's me. Uh... (laughs) Thank you very much. And could you please give our other speakers a huge round of applause as well? Is there anyone who would like to put up their hand to ask a question and then come out the front?
5: Um... What did the ninjas look like? I'm not allowed to tell you. They looked like ninjas. They the, the black pajamas, the scarf around the head, and they had that wooden swordy thing over the back. It wasn't a raven. It wasn't a magpie. It was a ninja. Honest. Cross my heart.
2: Thank you very much. Anyone else have a question to ask? Uh, this is for Will. Uh, what's your favourite Natalie Portman movie? (laughs) Well, in this essay, I will. Uh, Um, I don't know. I really love V for Vendetta, but, um... Oh, I've gone completely blank. I am a terrible fan. I liked Garden State as a teenager, and then I thought about it as an adult and was like, no. Uh, (laughs) Um... Honestly, I, I really like Black Swan, mostly because, you know, the memes. Um, and, yeah, I just really enjoy that movie. So, yeah. Thank you. Cool. Awesome. Uh, does anyone else have any questions? Hi, Will. Um, I, another question for you. Would you protect Natalie Portman
6: at all costs? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Look, I am being very well behaved. I have been stalking Natalie Portman in Double Bay since she's been here. I have not found her yet. I know where her kids go to ballet, and that... That sounds bad, but I found out by accident. Is she here now? What? Oh... (laughs) Is this the part where you're like, and Natalie's here! No! Someone (laughs) needs to protect Natalie from
7: Willow.
2: Oh, that was mean. All right. So as much as I love this topic, uh, authors love uh, the sound of their own voices talking about their latest books. And we will work from left to right and sort of talk about our latest
5: releases for you. So, yeah. Uh, Thanks, Well, My latest book is Graveyard Shift in Ghost Town, which is a sequel to Gap Year in Ghost Town. I call it the Ghost Town series uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and after years of writing fantasy and science fiction set in strange, far off, exotic places with all sorts of outre and outlandish situations, these two books are set in Melbourne, where I live. Uh, it it was refreshing for me, uh, at least to take that leap into a contemporary urban fantasy sort of situation. And instead of having to try to work out how far is it from this imaginary town A to this imaginary castle B across this imaginary land with its imaginary landscape, I just use Google Maps in Melbourne. It it was really easy. And it's also what I call a voice novel because much like the karma novel, it's someone talking to you off the page. And that, that's a particular challenge for an author to get that it's rhythm and vocabulary that carry the day there. And it does give the main character a chance to be candid in a way that they can't otherwise. So that was, I enjoyed writing them. I hope you enjoy reading them. Garth.
4: Thank you, Michael. My latest book is The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. The title says it all. Um, It's a fantasy thriller. It's set in a somewhat alternate 1983 England, and it is about a young woman who goes in search of her father in London. She is going to become an art student who's never known her father. She has a few clues from her mother, who's very absent-minded, to say the least, Um, So she goes in search of him. She very soon falls into the orbit of a left-handed bookseller, Merlin. And the left-handed booksellers and the right-handed booksellers and the even-handed booksellers belong to a kind of secret society whose job it is to keep the ancient entities of mythic England under control to prevent them from erupting into the modern world. So Susan, come to find her father, is drawn into the orbit of the booksellers and her quest to find her father soon kind of commingles with uh, one that Merlin and his sister Vivian have to find out what actually happened to their mother who was murdered apparently by, uh, by gangsters, but perhaps not. And uh, it's a fantasy thriller, Alton 983 England, and uh, that says it all.
7: Um, my latest book is You Are Made For Me. And it's about two teen girls called Katie and Libby. And one afternoon, they're very bored. The internet's not working, so they don't, and they um, don't have any data on their phones. So they <laughs> they have nothing to do. So they decide to like pretend um, to make a boy, as you do. Um, Katie is an artist, so she's sculpting something out of clay. And Libby likes to fancy herself a scientist, so she makes up this concoction. I won't I won't say potion because Libby gets very offended when I say potion. Um, in the kitchen, um, just as a joke, because Katie has this obsession with her, Um, getting the perfect guy and and the perfect first kiss. So Libby's trying to kind of prove a point to her um, that this, this perfect thing doesn't exist. So she's going through this creative exercise um, but anyway, there's like, there's a few things that happen. I don't, you know, you don't really know which one um, is the the key event, but there's like a storm and then like Katie kind of kisses the Clegg sculpture because she's like a weirdo like that. Um, anyway, a few hours later, she wakes up and there's a um, fully grown teenage boy in her bed naked. Um, and so begins her adventure with the perfect guy who she thought was a perfect guy who's looks like a long lost Hemsworth brother and he smells like the Ocean and springtime, and his uh, his lips taste like cookie dough. Um, and so, you know, she's got this really romantic um, guy who's absolutely devoted for her, devoted to her. She names him Guy because she's creative, but she's not that creative. And um, it, he complicates her life in ways that she doesn't quite anticipate. Um, but yeah, and no animals are harmed in the making of the book. <laughs>
2: Uh, My latest novel is Rebel Gods, which was released at the height of the pandemic, so I'm enjoying my flop era. No, um, (laughs) laugh, it's sad. (laughs) Uh, But basically, uh, Rebel Gods is the continuation of the Monuments duology, uh, which saw three teenagers skip school to find the ancient gods that were buried under different Sydney high schools, and then um, they accidentally killed those gods and consumed their powers. And so Rebel Gods is the continuation of that that sees these three teenagers wrestle with what it's like to live in 2021 with the powers of the gods? How would they change the world and how would the world react if they did?
3: Uh, My latest novel is The Lost Soul Atlas and it was also released in the middle of the pandemic, so I I feel your pain. (laughs) Um, it's the story of Twig, a young boy who wakes up in the afterlife and he's got no memories of how he died or, um, his life, his life, I was going to say on earth, but it's not really on earth, is it? Just his life. Yeah. Um, and as he makes his way through the afterlife, he begins to remember small little snippets of what happened to him and he has to decide very quickly whether he, um, Gives into this kind of blissful existence where he remembers nothing and no one, or whether he defies the gods and um, tries to remember and protect those he left behind.
0: Uh, my book is called The Boy from the Mish, and I luckily just missed the pandemic. Uh, my book came out in February. Uh, It's about a 17-year-old Aboriginal boy named Jackson who is a closeted gay kid uh, living in country New South Wales in a small Aboriginal village. Uh, And yeah, at the start of the book, he meets this other Aboriginal boy named Thomas who uh, awakens these feelings in him and forces him to uh, take that journey to accept his sexuality and uh, let himself fall in love for the first time.
6: Um, and my latest book is called The Gaps. It's set at an exclusive private girls' school called Balmoral Ladies' College. Um, at the beginning of the novel, one of the students, Yin Mitchell, is abducted from her own home. Um, and the story is told from the perspective of two very different students, Chloe, um, who's a scholarship student who's new to Balmoral and is really struggling to kind of find friends and fit in, um, and Natalia, who has been at school forever um, and is kind of the queen bee of her year level, um, but is really struggling with the fact that she used to be best friends with the um, kidnapped girl, Yin, um, back when they were in junior school. Um, And I really wanted to create a story that was about a crime, but wasn't crime fiction, um, and, and kind of showed the after effects of a crime rippling through a school community, but in particular want to show um, how how vulnerable and how strong girls can be um, in that particular situation, how they could get through a difficult um, and traumatic situation and kind of learn to express themselves through art. So Chloe decides to explore the theme of Lost Girls in a photography project and Natalia, at first as a way to distract herself, kind of weasels her way onto the project Um, And through forming a friendship and expressing themselves through art, they kind of find a way through the difficult year.
2: Well, that brings our time together to a close. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, thank you very much to the Sydney Writers' Festival crew and also to Gary Lonesborough, Zana Frelon, Garth Nix, Leanne Hall, Michael Pryor and Jenna Guillaume for joining us for our gala.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.